Hi, I'm David Green, and you're listening to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Today, we're diving into an intriguing aspect of our daily lives that often goes unnoticed, microstress. We all experience countless microstressors throughout our day. Think about it. Spilling your morning coffee, getting caught in traffic, or receiving an influx of emails. These microstressors, though seemingly minor, can create a ripple effect, influencing our mood, focus, and ability to handle additional challenges as the day progresses. It's remarkable how these daily microstresses can silently influence our lives without us fully realizing their impact. Today, I have the pleasure of discussing this topic with Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, authors of a compelling new book, The Microstress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems, and What to Do About It. In their book, Rob and Karen dive deep into the world of microstress, uncovering its hidden consequences and providing practical strategies to address and mitigate its effects. And today, I will be picking their brains on how we as individuals and HR leaders can all become more mindful of microstresses in our daily lives and create healthier, more productive work environments. So without further ado, let's uncover the world of microstress. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, the co-authors of an important new book, The Microstress Effect, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Rob, Karen, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you both on the show. Rob, for the second time, um, first time for a couple of years, and, and Karen for the first. And I'm really looking forward to discussing your very timely book, The Microstress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems, and What to Do About It, which Dan Pink has described as a revelation, and I must admit, I was reading through it. Go, yeah, aha, uh-huh, yeah, aha. Uh-huh. But before we get started, can you pl- please both give a brief introduction to yourself? So, Karen, we'll start with you. Sure. Thank you, David. We're so glad to be here today. Um, I'll just briefly say I'm a former editor of Harvard Business Review magazine and uh, co-author on a number of books with Clayton Christensen. And in this case, I'm really delighted to be co-authoring this book, which I think is really important with Rob Cross. Thanks, Karen. It's a great to have you on the show. And and Rob. All right. So I'm Rob Cross. I teach at, at Babson College. I'm uh, working with I4CP now as a, a research director in some of the work. But my focus has generally been on analytically looking at collaborations and, and relationships in a range of different ways. And so this work has been a huge privilege. It, it took me quite a while to convince Karen to work with me on it, but to really look at some of the ways that connections have a, uh, an impact on our well-being as a super timely, relevant, exciting to be able to get the ideas out and share with people. Well, it's great to have you both on. And, and Rob, I think I may have described you last time you were on the podcast as the as the godfather of organizational network analytics. I won't say anything quite so embarrassing again. Yeah, which but... means I'm very old, right? <laughs> he must be ancient now. <laughs> but it but it is great that, um, you know, because, you know, before we get into it, you know, obviously you've been working in the network analytics uh, field for, for a number of years. And I think one of the challenges organizations have with using network analytics is is the is the particularly with passive network analytics is the whole so-called creepy factor but your book this book particularly shows the positive impact of understanding networks and understanding how that kind of have an impact on well-being and and you know and, and culture within an organization i'm sure we'll touch on that in in the conversation as well but i just wanted to put 
put that out there right at the start so you didn't have to say it um i thought i, I would say it as well um but but rob start, starting with you you know given the current abundance of research you know which bringing to light what is you know widely acknowledged as the burnout ec- epidemic you know obviously the world economic forum you know talked about that um back in 2019 and what kathleen hogan for example the microsoft uh, chief people officer has termed as a human energy crisis. Your book is very timely. It's definitely very timely. But th- this wasn't the reason why you started researching microstress, was it? Yeah, no, not, not at all. And maybe you've had this experience with your companies as well, but I didn't want to do this idea. <laughs> this actually started about five or six years ago. Uh, I was in one of my big meetings and we were presenting results on understanding how high performers leverage connections and networks around them. And a couple of people slowly put their hands up and said, well, performance is great, but we'd also like to know about people that are happier, you know, and, and kind of thriving in their work and sustainable. And I remember at the time, I just kind of cringed because the only thing people cared about back then was innovation. You know, this was pre-COVID and that was it. And I thought, that's the direction I want to take this group in. But they got my attention, you know, with it and I started pursuing it. And it really got into my soul, right? When you start to use these analytics to understand the way that connections have an impact on our well-being, it really helps in in very concrete ways make things pragmatic and actionable like you were seeing in the, the read that you did uh, through the book. Um, and in tandem, what I started to, to really focus on with the book and the work with Karen was looking at how connections have an impact on well-being in general. So the initial focal point was to say, okay, let's build a framework of the ways that relationships are likely to impact well-being and then go after that, understand that, the positive side of it. So we're looking at how connections impact physical health, how they create a sense of growth for us in and out of our, our professions, uh, how they create purpose in our lives, and then how they generate resilience for us, right? And so we're, as one example, we're used to thinking about resilience as something we own, right? It's grit, it's fortitude, it's leaning in. But if you ask hundreds and hundreds of people about how they make it through a difficult stretch in their lives, it can be a career setback, it can be surviving cancer, I mean, all sorts of things, you know, we heard about in the interviews. Actually, here there are eight ways that people help us, you know, create resilience for us with perspective, with empathy, with humor, right, and, and different devices. And the people that had those connections uh, do much better. And that's what we were gearing off of. And, and to tell you a quick story to give you the genesis of this, on the very first interview, life science executive in London, you're part of the world, you know, and, and brilliant woman, you could tell. And she, you know, started the interview off and we said, well, tell us about a time in your life you were becoming more physically healthy whatever that means to you, right? Um, and and she just kind of laughed for a second. And she said, well, Rob, I was the person in, in high school that dodged gym or PE every chance I could, wanted nothing to do with it. And that worked for me up until about kind of mid-30s, you know, where, where the profession had gotten too stressful, family life was taking over, and my doctor said, you have to do something about it. And we actually see that statistically. It's about that point, you know, that people are falling out of groups and, and having impact. And so her solution was she started walking around a park in London and she was doing it at the same time each day and she started walking and bumping into the same people. And so they started walking together and then it led to a longer walk and a charity walk and then a short charity run. And then you flash forward 10 years to when we were talking to her and she was somebody that would would plan her vacations where she would do a marathon first with her husband and a small set of this group, right? And this was the person that dodged gym in high school, right? And for, for most of her life. So it was this fantastic um, view of how embedding the physical activities you're trying to lean into in a group, right, has major benefits because New Year's Eve resolutions are done by January 23rd, right? It's not like we don't know what we need to do. It's the way we build connections around it. 
But then the whole genesis of this microstress happened at about 45 minutes into that interview. So you got to imagine this interview going 100 miles a minute, super excited. Everybody's laughing. We're thinking, you know, we get hundreds of these. We have a New York Times bestseller. And then we just asked on a whim. We said, well, what got you in trouble? And this interview that was going 100 miles a minute went down to nothing. Pure silence for like 45, 60 seconds. And she couldn't tell us, right? And and basically what caught her and caught the hundreds of people that we spoke with after this was not one big thing, right? It wasn't one toxic boss or a major health scare. Now, those happened to people, but that wasn't the thing that was crushing them. What was crushing them was the slow accumulation of the small moments of stress that was coming at them because we're so hyper-connected today, right? And it was happening both professionally and personally. And it was really that moment, right? That pivot moment that said, wow, there's something different happening here that we kept leaning into. Uh, to understand better, you know, what is this kind of stress? How do we think about it? How do we see it? How do we deal with it? Because it literally is killing people. And it's fascinating, Rob, because that one pause 45 minutes into the interview, that one sort of thing that you weren't expecting, it's interesting how that, you know, one ob- observation can change the whole scope of your your research. So so tell us more about the research that you then subsequently did or consequently did into that and, and what you found. Right. So we kept teasing that apart, you know, and we'd say, like, just tell me about your day, you know, and, and kind of where were these interactions coming at us? And they could be things like sensing misalignment with a colleague on a call. And you're just in the back of your mind wondering, OK, well, how am I going to solve this? we got to do this before it gets too far down the road. Um, and that's in the back of your mind. Right. And then the very next call, you see a teammate that needs to be coached for the third time on how they're handling something. And again, it's not fight or flight. You're not panicked, but it's in the back of your mind wondering how you're going to do that and maintain their engagement. And then you get a text from a child right out of the blue (laughs) and they're grumping about something that you can't tell if it's a big deal or they're over it in two minutes and you worry about it for three hours in the back of your mind. And that's what was happening to people, right? It was the slow addition accumulation of stress that none of it really registered, you know, in terms of creating this fight or flight response, the mechanism we're used to using to handle stress, but it would pile up and exhaust people. And it's the reason most of us end the day, our heads hit the pillow and we can't put a finger on what just happened. And the thing that, that, you know, there's a whole series of things. We found 14 of these micro stressors, you know, that fall into three categories, very specific tactics for dealing with them in isolation and in aggregate that, that we found in our work. Um, but one of the most troubling things I found, these were highly successful people. Like we didn't talk to anybody unless they were successful and in a good organization. And yet all of them described stretches of three, five, eight years of their lives where they would just fall into a system of behavior and wake up one day and go, I'm nowhere near where I meant to be, <laughs> you know, if they had the luxury of waking up. And it was all the, the small moments that matter. And the small moments actually turn out to be a lot of the solution, too. So that was the good news of it uh, all as we went. We'll, we'll certainly dig in later to, I think, the, the three categories of, of, you know, which cover the 14 sources of microstress. But Firstly, Karen, turning to you, I'd love I'd love it if you can explain what the difference is between microstress and the stress that maybe we can all more commonly relate to. Sure. So even the term microstress may be new to people because Rob and I created it in response to what we were seeing in this research. And, and we created it for a reason is because we didn't think we had the language to describe something we're all feeling, microstress. Um, but we only know how to talk about stress in, in bigger, more recognizable ways. So, we'll, so I'll compare 
macro stress to what I mean by micro stress. So macro stress are, are large things that happen in your life that sometimes there's a bad person or major health issue. You lose a job. You have a really toxic boss. You're really worried about your child's behavior. Those are stresses that we know, recognize, and can can have empathy and sympathy for, receive empathy and have sympathy and empathy for other people. And as a society, we recognize that they take a toll on us. And there are things that we coach people to do when they have those kinds of stresses in their life. But micro stresses are, are such tiny, brief moments of stress that come specifically from interactions with other people um, that are so brief that our brains literally barely register them. Our frontal lobe, which is the sort of mental scratch pad of our brain, barely registers it because we're kind of under this constant form of stress that we almost don't have language to talk about, but our bodies do. So the body doesn't distinguish between different forms of stress. Microstress may happen in smaller increments, but it layers up as Rob talked about. So what happens with microstress is you kind of don't remember the, the interaction with someone that was getting brief, so fleeting, that, that started to make you feel exhausted in the day, and then you had five others or seven others or 10 others. Uh, by the end of the day, your body knows it's been stressed, it, it, but it doesn't trigger the normal fight or flight mechanisms that stress normally does. So we, the toll of, uh, of microstress on us is significant and cumulative. There's some interesting research that shows that if we are exposed to social stress within two hours of a meal, so just social stress, not a horrible macro stress thing that happened to us, the body will metabolize that food as if we ate 104 extra calories. Now, that doesn't sound like very much, 104 extra calories, a couple more bites of something. But if that happened every day, which it probably does for many of us, that could add up to 11 pounds a year that we gain 11 pounds a year. So the, the effect, the physiological effect of microstress is significant and it takes a toll, but we literally don't remember the things that happened because they're so brief, our mind doesn't process it in the same way. And I mean, I don't know if in the research, it, it's really interesting because there's been a blurring between work and personal life. I think I, since since the pandemic, obviously lots of research you know, about remote work and hybrid work and what the future might be around that. But there's definitely that blurring of personal and, and, and work, maybe because we're predominantly working where we live. Um, you know, have you, I mean, again, do, I don't know if in your research, is you, do you see it, do you see it something that's been exacerbated by the pandemic and, and the whole sort of shift to hybrid since since then? Or? Absolutely. What we've seen is the the volume of opportunities for stress to come at us through these connections has gone up. Right. So just as one simple example, pre-pandemic, most people organized their lives by eight one hour meetings. Right. They'd complain about being overwhelmed, but it was typically our meetings that they were talking about. Through the pandemic, somebody came up with a great idea that let's go to 30-minute meetings or maybe even shorter. And so now we've got 16 of these things, right? And we're, we're more stressed in the moment. We're moving across them. We end the day with longer to-do lists. You know, we're working five to eight hours more. And it's, it's just, a, you know, that's just one example of all the opportunities for small moments of stress to come at us through how we're connected. And that's a really big deal because it's not disassociated stress, right? That's out there. There's social justice issues, the war in the Ukraine, all that stuff that's not great. This is stuff that's coming at us through people we know, right? And so if I'm irritated with you, then it spikes me even more, right? Or if I love somebody, my daughter's one of my biggest source of micro stresses, biggest love of my life, but my biggest micro stress at the same time, it spikes you even more, right? And so there's a legitimate rise in the, the, the opportunity to feel that kind of stress um, over time because of those touch points. 
And so that's one thing we see. And I don't care if you want to comment on on what. Sure. I, I would just sort of the companion to that is that so while the pandemic sort of created all those extra exponential, I would say, opportunities for microstress to happen in our day because of the way we needed to work differently, it also took away one of the most powerful antidotes to microstress, which is some of the social contact and, and or groups and organizations and opportunities to be with people outside of work and home. For most of us, our world got smaller during the pandemic and we stopped because of social distancing. Many of the kind of routine things that we did that were just sort of part of our everyday life, coffee chats with people, book groups, religious attendance, being part of civic groups, that just narrowed down. And I think for many of us, we haven't got it back fully. But what we've learned from our research is that kind of uh, what we call a multidimensional life outside of the sort of narrowness of work and home, which are everybody's anchors. Uh, is really important to being able to mitigate the microstress in your life, to put it in perspective, to make sure you sort of have opportunities to see the world differently. So we lost a powerful antidote to it, and we gained more microstress in the pandemic, and we haven't really kicked away some of those things that happened in the past few years, and we're still trying to get back to new normal, I guess. And and sort of a continuation of that, I mean, see, I see days, and I'm sure you both have them as well, I'm sure many of our listeners do, where you, you start the day thinking, I'm, I'm going to get these three or four things done. And then ev- events overtake you. And sometimes it can be because something major's happened. But at the end of the day, that kind of resonates. Okay, something major happened with a client, or with a member of a family, with a colleague. And, and, and I had to drop everything and deal with that. But it seems with the micro stresses, you, that these, these, it's, it's a culmination of a number of different things that happen. You get to the end of the day and think, how did why didn't I not achieve the, the the three or four things that I wanted to do? Is that where the microstress effect comes in a little bit? I, I definitely think it can, right? With all the things that are hitting us and interactions. And I do think to you know your audience, it's very much an analytic challenge, right? That, that we have the ability to apply analytics to all sorts of things. We have not caught up. We've tried to design network-centric organizations, right? We've created agile talent marketplaces. You know, you go down the list of things that's intended to create one firm cultures. But we haven't really factored in that there's a cost to all that, right? And using some kind of analytics to either help groups understand how they're working or just individuals to see, well, yeah, that's what just happened to me. I had eight small disruptions. The problem with the micro stresses is that they're all small, right? They're all things that reasonable human beings, successful human beings should just get over. So we bypass it rather than deal with it, you know, and say, okay, this is systemic enough that I need to do something about it. Um, and that, that, you know, certainly one driver for how these things kind of creep in on us in different ways. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and Karen, in turning back to you, 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 you talked a little bit about some of the, the detrimental effects on, on our neuro, neurological and physical makeup, you know, how, you know, go, maybe go into that a little bit more. How, how does our brain respond to micro stress compared to conventional stress and, and what can be some of the long-term effects of experience and a high volume of, of microstresses on the on the brain? Sure. So just to be clear, neither one of us are neuroscientists but or <laughs> neurologists, but but um, as we understand it from talking to neuroscientists and neurologists, our body and our brain is constantly trying to predict. It gets better at predicting stress. Um, so it sort of knows how to respond to it. And that's where the fight or flight mechanisms come in. It knows how to sort of raise our, elevate our adrenaline and our heart rate when we need to respond in some way. It knows how to sort of what's called body budget is to try to make your systems work constantly to try to, to keep, you at, keep you at equilibrium, what's called allostasis. So our body's good at that. 
our body is less good at predicting microstress because, again, it's not registering in, in, the, in the same way. So one of the researchers that we talked to, a woman called Lisa Feldman Barrett at Northeastern University, who's sort of pioneered this concept of body budgeting, that your body kind of knows how to anticipate, gives a really good analogy, which is that if you imagine that microstress is the equivalent of children jumping on a bed. So you can have one child, two children, three children, no big deal. The bed will hold. They'll be having fun. And that's our body kind of responding to the microstresses. You get to the 10th one, the bed's kind of holding. The 11th one, the kid jumps on, the bed breaks. And that's what happens to our body. So our body, again, it body doesn't distinguish between different forms of stress. It may take a little more time for the microstress to add up, but its cumulative toll does all the things. It makes us exhausted. It affects our mood. And by mood, we mean just the kind of how, how we am I today, not happy or sad, but I don't feel great. I don't have energy. That can take a toll. So your body is not responding to that microstress in the way it knows to respond to regular forms of stress. So it's sort of, it's sort of a, a, a puzzle for the body. And that's why it's so challenging. Although an interesting thing, which I know we'll probably talk about a little bit more later, is uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett also says that while people are a part of the problem, the, the microstress that comes from other people, they're also part of the solution that that the positive parts of being connected to people can do a real can do great benefits on your brain and your body that that it really does add to your ability to counter it so it's not all bad news there's bad news and then there's some good news about being connected with and interacting with other people no no that's it's really interesting and and don't worry I, we 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 know you're not medical physicians, so uh, neuroscientists. <laughs> but, but as you said, you interviewed people that are and, and understood, yeah, the, understood yeah. the impact. And yeah. and it's, I guess it's, you know, and maybe we'll talk about this later as well. You know, it obviously has an impact on well-being, but ultimately it, it has an impact on performance as well, which, you know, is, is something that organizations, hopefully they care about the well-being, but hopefully they care about the, care about the performance even more. It's just, it's undeniable, you know, that it can, right? And creativity and innovation and execution. And I do think that you mentioned that idea of blurring between, you know, profession and personal has got to be done at some level, right? You, you know, to, to kind of create, help create a context, right? Where people can, can flourish today. So hey, one of the things I'll just add to that is microstress is stuff coming at us all day long, right? We're interacting and we're responding to things. So what Rob and I talked about is being in a responsive posture all, all day long. None of us can be at our best when all we're doing is kind of responding to the stuff coming at us as opposed to proactively shaping our day. So even in our work and in our careers and in our lives, if all we're doing is figuring out which balls can we get away with dropping because we're overwhelmed with stuff coming at us, that's not a definition of doing our best work and, and growing and, and you know being happy with your performance and being the best person you can possibly be in your life and in your professional life. So um, responding all the time, which is what happens when you're inundated with microstress, is just a recipe for not doing that. Yeah, it's like playing tennis and you've got 14 people serving at yes, you at the same exactly. time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it's like. It's like you can't get yourself back on the left. Like they're coming at you too quickly. You're, it's over there. You know, there's no chance of responding to that shot over there if someone was just serving at you constantly from all sides of the court. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting employee privacy using Worklytics Data Stream. Worklytics combines passive listening with organizational network analysis to help you understand how work is getting done so you can identify bottlenecks, improve collaboration, and increase employee engagement. Curious to see how it works? Worklytics is offering a free meeting effectiveness analysis to the first 10 qualified companies who express interest. Tell them I sent you 
by going to worklytics.co forward slash digital HR leaders. That's W-O-R-K-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot co forward slash digital HR leaders. You mentioned earlier, Rob, and in the book, you identify 14 sources of microstress, which you group into into three categories. I'd love to have the time to go into all 14, but I think what we do have the time is to go into the three categories and what they are. And I think that will really help bring awareness to, for listeners to some of the factors that can lead to to the microstresses in, that we're probably all experiencing. Sure, sure. Well, the first one for us were interactions, again, as Karen said, in our professional and our personal lives um, that uh, drained our capacity, our ability to get done what we needed to get done. And it's very similar to what you just said, right? You start off the day thinking there's three things I'm going to get done. And suddenly these things start to accumulate around you and you're, you, you end the day going, well, it didn't happen. And I'm not quite sure why, <laughs> you know, what, what, just, what just went on there. But there were five forms of those. Now, again, we went through hundreds and hundreds of interviews, you know, to really isolate out where and what does this look like? Because it all tends to fly under the radar screens. But um, one of them was uh, misalignment, you know, and there's a tremendous amount of work being done through cross-functional agile teams, things like that, where people will come in and agree in the room and then go off and pull in slightly different directions, either because they care about different aspects of the work, their leaders are pulling them in different, you know, paths, whatever it may be, but it would create misalignment that for many people was one of their worst career experiences was when misalignment wasn't handled well. A second one are small performance misses from people you're counting on. So what we would find is people are not just on one team. They maybe have one home team, but usually they're on four, five, six collaborative efforts, right? It's just this lack of uh, analytics, again, for leaders to understand the cost of all these teams they throw at, at, at places and problems. And what would happen is if you happen to own one initiative with four other people on your team and they showed up to your effort, 95% done, right? So they're almost done, exactly what you agreed on, tiny misses. The problem is that four people times 5% means 20% to you, right? And you're stuck with this decision. Do I work a little bit deeper into the night and upset my family, my friends? I pull myself further out of things that were keeping me healthy and whole, um, or do I underdeliver, right? And both of those things create stress. Most people chose in their stories to do the hero route, right? And they created stress for themselves, but then they also taught people that maybe 90% is good enough next time, right? And again, to Karen's point, it's not that people are nefarious, is that they were legitimately, most people were making decisions on which balls to drop, not not where to excel in different ways. So we see, you know, five of them, right? There's the misalignment, small misses, uh, shifts in expectations from stakeholders, you know, that shift the what of the work, the performance expectations, Emotionally, they show up differently, uh, point A to point B, uh, collaborative overload itself, just the sheer volume of, of collaborations we're having to deal with, and then surges in, in either professional or personal work. And just to you know, give an example on the personal side, many people described what they called parent homework, right? Where the par- kids get sent home with a project. End of the day, Friday, there is no reasonable human you know, being in the fifth grade that could accomplish this project without a bunch of parental support. And so it's not just, you know, work-related surges, right? It's all these surges that we pile on ourselves because that's what good parents do, right? <laughs> they rise to it. All of them in isolation are not big deals, but but they chip away at us, right? And they hurt our ability. So that category was really geared around drains to capacity. And there are unique things you can do about each of them that we've 
uh, talked about in the book. But let me give it to Karen for the the next category. Sure. The the next category are micro stresses that deplete your emotional reserves. Meaning, let's just say you start every day with a kind of emotional tank of things that you can that you need to get through during the day, and then little by little, those micro stresses are like they poke in holes in your in your tank of emotional reserves and, and making it harder to get through your day. And a couple of simple examples are if you're a manager or just you, know, you have people in your life that you're responsible for. The feeling of responsibility for the success and well-being of those people is is full of possible microstresses. So oftentimes you think of managers as just having a headache and hurting cats, which is a microstress. But it's also sometimes because they care so much. They want the people that are working with them to thrive and do well. And you might notice an employee needing to be coached on a point for the second or third time. And you figure you have to have that conversation again, try to be constructive, but be clear. That's a microstress because you want that person to do well and you carry that with you. It, the same whole it's true for the people in your in your personal life as well. So that's a, a sort of prizing microstress. It's not that they're driving you crazy. It's that you care about them and you want them to do well. That's one good example. And another good example of microstress that depletes your emotional reserves are what we call secondhand stress. And I think most of us have worked with people in environments where you may not be stressed about something in particular, but a colleague is. It's the chicken little of your office. And suddenly they're sort of whipping up a froth all around them about um, something that could go wrong or something they're stressed about. And it permeates everyone else in the office. And this isn't sort of just a, a metaphorical st- secondhand stress. There's research that suggests the, the expression, I feel your pain, is literally true. There's research on the motor neurons in our brain that if we're in the room with someone we care about and they are feeling pain, our brains will process what we assume to be the pain they're feeling as if we're feeling it too. So it is literally physical. So being around someone who's stressed out makes us stressed out. Um, And those things little by little throughout your day just completely deplete that emotional reserves tank. So by the time you get home, when you most want to be your best self, it may be your worst self of the day because the tank's already gone and then something triggers you at home, something that depletes your emotional reserves at home is the is the 11th kid jumping on the bed and then, then you end up not being your best self and the micro stresses of the day have taken a toll on you and the people you love most. So that's the second category. And then Rob, that probably segues nicely to the third category. Yeah, yeah. so I'll grab that one. That one is, that category is challenges to identity, right? And it's just small interactions that, uh, accumulate and slowly push us into being people we didn't in- initiate, right, or didn't plan to be uh, in the beginning. And that, to me, they're more subtle, right? The, the, if you notice the impact of these kind of increase as we go down the list, the drains are fairly obvious. The emotional ones have a bigger impact. The challenges to identity kind of creep up on you. But that was, you know, one of the more disturbing things I mentioned earlier, that people would be in these windows of three, five, eight years where they would wake up one day and just go, you know what, I've, I've allowed myself to fall into a system, a pattern of behavior, expectations that I'm not, that's not where I want it to be, right? And some people are able to get out, some people didn't. But what they would take the form of is, you know, pressure to pursue, uh, for example, efficiencies or revenue, you know, in ways that didn't line up with what that person believed in. So overselling uh, on a product or a service that, that kind of created, um, you know, dynamics that they didn't believe in themselves. Uh, or another one was kind of shifts, how we shift uh, either because we're, we're looking to take another job or we take a promotion. Um, those transitions disrupt the connections that we had in our lives that made us who we are to begin with, right? And a lot of people, what would happen is probably 90% of our population, these are, again, we're all highly successful people, right? But they would recount to us a myriad transitions through their career where they took a promotion or they took a job in another company and they would come home and tell their significant other, well, you're not going to see me for six, nine months, right? I've got to be heads down 
and then I'll get back to life, right? And of course, they never did, right? They, they kind of slowly, at each increment, became smaller versions of themselves and lost the things that were kind of keeping them, you know, whole to begin with. Now, the fascinating thing and kind of a transition from the, the micro stress to the people that really seem to have it nailed, we call them our 10 percenters, because about one in 10, they were just living fundamentally differently in ways that allowed them to hit the performance goals, but just thrive more naturally. And some of it, to be honest, had a lot to do with this integration of work and life a little bit uniquely through uh, connections. But they would do the transitions differently. You know, they would describe stories of going into it and say, well, why at this point, why should I fall into everybody else's idea of fun, right? This is the ideal point to shape other people's expectations, right, of who I am and what I can bring. And this is actually the ideal point, not to shrink, but actually think about who I want to be and expand. And they would put their anchors out in different ways. And it had a huge payback. You know, what we know from this work, one of the big things is these micro stresses, there's so many coming at us. There are things we can do to, to remove some of them that are very important. And I can talk to that in a minute. But a really important piece too is, is engaging in life in ways that helps you rise above them. Right. And actually having other things you care about, other dimensions in your life, like Karen mentioned earlier, is a, a really big deal. And these people did that well, transition after transition versus letting them fall away. So those are a couple of ideas uh, from from that category. No, really interesting. So basically the three categories, capacity draining, emotion depleting, identity challenging, you know, pretty, pretty significant things. And and I think you said in the first category on the capacity Rob, we're, we're collaborating more and more, more and more than we've ever have done at work. And so I suppose the, the opportunity for some of those examples that you both gave to happen are more abundant than maybe they were five, six, seven, ten years ago. And actually, I think what would be good now, Rob, is to explore a little bit further how, you know, being aware of what these sources are is the first thing, education, I guess. But now knowing what some of the strategies are to help fight and prevent them is 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 obviously the next step. So you, you kind of hinted a little bit there, but but how can we as individuals combat these 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 micro stresses in both our professional and personal lives? Because they are blurring, but we can't just deal with it in, in one side. We need to deal with it in both sides, really, don't we? Yeah. So, you know, one thing we have put out there for everybody, it's it's free They're on the app store is something called the Micro Stress Effect app. And people can download it and they can whip through these 14 that we're talking about and isolate where two or three, four of these impacting our lives and actually generate a report for themselves. You know, because what we would do then is our analytic strategy was to say, you know, what are five to six ways that people typically deal with this? You know, if we go across hundreds and hundreds of interviews and then be able to come back to to people with suggestions around each micro stress, because they're different, right? How you would handle uh, you know, a misalignment problems different than how you would handle secondhand stress, right? That, that, you know, Karen is talking about. Um, but our, our pivot point in the book, chapter five, you know, really kind of lays out this table where we have, you know, the, the 14 micro stresses down the one column. And then across the top, we have the typical sources of these micro stresses, right? So it can be a boss, teammates, colleagues at work, loved ones, you know, and kind of thinking about where these things come at us inside and outside of work. And one of the most you know, powerful things we've seen is you get people to take you know, three passes through this thing, right? And we'll say the first pass through, I just want you to isolate out two, three, or four uh, cells where there's a, a micro stress that's systemic enough in your life that you should be doing something about it. You've just kind of been persisting through it, but you should change the nature of the interaction, increase the time duration from those interactions, whatever it is, right? There's a lot of small strategies. 
Um, and that turns out to be a big deal. We know from social psychology that the negative interactions typically have three to five times the impact of the positive ones in our lives. So if we are just doing things around well-being that help us persist in the system that we've let build around us, um, then we're actually leaving the high-value stuff on the table, the high-leverage stuff, right, to actually say if you can shift that. So first pass is, you know, what are you, what are you absorbing that you could actually do something about? Second pass then, and it always catches people off guard, is to say, well, what are you causing? <laughs> what are you unnecessarily creating? You know, and everybody goes, oh, I hadn't thought about that, right? I've been focused on just me. And, you know, the same idea, right, is what we found. You don't want to be somebody that, that creates it unnecessarily. But what we also found is that the stress we create inevitably boomerangs back on us in different forms. Right? And so the less we're unnecessarily generating because we're under pressure, the less we tend to experience. So it might be leaning on a star employee one step too much, right? And suddenly they back away and you're working harder, leaning on a child on something that doesn't really matter, but you're down in the weeds. Um, and so the less we create, the less we absorb. And then the third is, um, where have you just gotten down in the minutiae? We have people go through a third pass and say, where have I just, somebody's gotten in under my skin and I'm allowing this thing to be a big deal. And in the scope of life, it isn't and isolating out, you know, three, four of those that becomes very actionable. You know, suddenly you're not coming in and saying, you know, David's driving me nuts. I'm going to dump him out of my network. We just have this one issue around shifting expectations, right? And that's, you know, you get down to the interaction versus the relationship, and it opens up a, a sea of possibilities on this level. Uh, the trick a lot of times is to keep people from identifying too many of them, right? You're trying to get them down to just three or four that they'll take action on and, and persist. So, so that's one overall strategy, right, for, for what we see people being able to sink their teeth into and get, uh, get things done. I just want to add one thing to that, because the reason it's so powerful to try to identify two or three things that you can take action on is that years of social science research tell us that a negative interaction can have three to five times the impact of a positive one. So if we are only trying to steel ourselves to deal with more stress, you know, lots of conventional methods, which are good things, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, that's trying to make us stronger to deal with the micro stress compared to the opportunity, the higher leverage opportunity of removing a negative, removing a couple of micro stresses. You can have a much more significant impact quickly if you can find two or three things reasonable to remove or change or shift in some way that it's, it's worth doing. It's worth trying to remove a couple of negatives. The impact will be material. Mm, yeah. So good, good advice there. I, I, I've done yeah, I've done that in my past, but I won't go. I won't go into it now. But you know, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you both have as well. Karen, staying with you, you know, obviously we've talked about how one micro, micro stress may not have a huge impact, but it's the ripple effect that impacts the rest of our day. But it's also how you respond and, and treat others as well. And Rob's just given us some you know great guidance on on maybe trying to tackle this from an individual level. But if we think most of the people listening to this podcast will be working in the HR field, you know, trying to support their organizations. So if we look at it through that lens of organizational culture, you know, how does micro stress affect team dynamics? Well, it's enormous because the cu a culture of microstress can be created, even through the technology we use, the fact that we all have cultures of and, right? We add things, we add teams, we add responsibilities, we add cross-company you know, cross collaborations, we add technologies, and we're always adding, all of which create exponential potential for microstress. So, so looking at it as a culture of microstress and trying to, again, even identify the, the two or three or four sort of significant ways that they are systemic and becoming systemic can completely change the sort of cultural impact of that 
even uh, just a simple example, a, a leader who send, routinely sends email to his team at nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, because that's when his mind is on it. He wants to get it off. He's creating the impression on his t- team that I need you to be on 24-7. I need you to, when you get the email from me at 10, I'm expecting a response before the morning. And that creates just the micro stress immediately. Eats into people's evening. It's blurring the life, the line between work and life. Do they have to panic and get some response? Even though he doesn't say that, that's a culture of just adding, you know, that's for the leader's benefit. So thinking about one, the micro stresses we create for others and asking managers and leaders to think about that, maybe actively assess where are the points where I am unintentionally, micro stresses are usually unintentionally created, creating stress for the people that I'm working with, collaborating with, responsible for it. That's one pass. Uh, and second, just recognizing that the impact of micro stress is significant. It's not just we're all busy, we all have to juggle, get over it. it. It's that we're actually affecting the performance of individuals and the team by every time there's a micro stress in your misalignment or uh, di- differing expectations or role uh, misalignment or secondhand stress. That affects, that has ripple effects on the organization too. So recognizing where you're causing it, changing the culture or trying to address the culture of micro, unintentional culture of micro stress. And three, recognizing that the impact is real. It's not just people griping about having too much to do. You're, you're really damaging the organization by not beginning to try to address some of these things. Yeah, it's, it's just simple things, isn't it? If you, if you are a, a leader and maybe nine o'clock is the only time you can send email, which isn't great, let's be honest about it. Just having that little, A, telling your team, look, just because I'm saying at nine o'clock, you don't need to do anything with it. You know, please don't do anything outside your working day. Or I've even seen some people in their email signature just saying, just because I'm responding to this email at X time doesn't mean that you, yeah, which is, you know, which is I, I, something, I suppose. Send it on a delay, like you're saying. I mean, that's that's one of the things that that we see tremendous impact with with these ideas is we'll just, you know, have team leaders there's a tool we built too on it, but you can do it with a blank piece of paper. Just draw two lines down a blank piece of paper, say, what are all the ways we're collaborating in the first column, right? And it's email meetings, team collaborative space, instant messaging applications. Usually it's six to nine things across companies that people are using. And then in the next column, pick one and say, okay, what are the three positive ways we want to use this tool versus it using us? And, and kind of build out those norms, right? So if it's email, maybe it's, we're just going to use it to confirm agreement, we're going to write bullet points versus 10 paragraph text where people hide what they want in the night. I mean, just kind of standard hygiene, you know, that we see. And in the last column, say, well, what are the three things we want to stop in this thing, right? And maybe it is that nine o'clock email, send it on a delay, whatever it may be, um, of the unnecessary CCing behavior, you know? And what I hear constantly is that people, a leader will fill that grid out, it takes maybe an hour to say, what are the things, the ways we should be using it versus it using us? bring it into a team meeting and people are laughing at the absurdity of what we do to each other, <laughs> but they've just never really thought about it. You know what I mean? And, and, and so there's a tremendous opportunity to really look at the norms of collaboration, just as one example, to your point, and, and in very specific ways, take down these stresses without even really affecting the work, right? And it's a helping the work. <laughs> it's not a matter of, oh, you need to be shielded from these micro stress, go home, whatever. This is actually just shifting how it's hitting people in, in different ways. So tons of opportunities mm. to, to do things like that yeah technology i mean I, there was some research published by microsoft recently and i think it was external research rather than you know looking at data within their own organization and it's and i think the average person was spending i think it was thirty-one thousand people they they surveyed for this uh was spending two days a week just answering email or being in meetings and actually if anything that seems like an underestimate to me i but, think it is from everything yeah 
And if you add that up, right, so that's just email and meetings and let's throw in instant messaging, let's throw in the team collaborative space and how we're using that. You know, it, it's, it's a lot for sure. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Obviously, as I mentioned, you know, most people that listen to this are, you know, HR leaders, HR professionals, people analytics professionals. You know, what can HR leaders or people leaders do to put some of the practices in place that you've both talked about to help combat or alleviate, you know, micro stress within their organization? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think, you know, one of the big things we're always focused on when we profile and we're talking to large groups, thousands of people, for example, on a web link. And we'll have them poll and say, what stresses are you experiencing? And you see the profile come up and then what stresses are you causing? <laughs> and they're almost identical polls, you know, at the results at the end of it, you know, the, the stress we experience and the stress we cause. And so part of it is looking for ways to stop that propagation, you know, in from a cultural standpoint. There's a lot of neat things analytically you can do if you've done network analysis to see who those key leaders are and how to shape, you know, what's going on that way. Um, I think purely tactically, some of the things that we're just starting to experiment with are organizations that are taking these ideas through all their team leaders and saying, you know, once a week for six weeks, Monday morning, you're going to get a nudge. And it's one of these practices, you know, short video based feed tool that you're given. You put that into play in your teams through the course of the week. And then uh, you end the day on Friday and you just talk to four other leaders about what you did and, and you know, what the results were. And kind of do a cadence like that for six weeks, right? Something like that, where there's an accountability and people are sharing things that are working or not. Um, I believe that those kind of small efforts, it's, first of all, it's possible for everybody, right? You don't have to have a massive budget to go do an O&A or whatever, um, but you can do that. And second, I think that to me is actually where we're going to get real change is not really through the policies and procedures. There's so many times that those things don't work, but to get it into the voice of the teams, Right, and to get the teams to be talking about making trade-offs in ways that I believe will lead to the cultural shift, you know, over time. So that's that's you know one example of things that we're seeing, you know, places take on. And you talked a little bit about you know people analytics specifically, you know, some of the analysis and maybe some of the the, the projects that they do could be to actually maybe start to understand and identify this within organizations, perhaps. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, for me, and, and obviously we've known each other for quite some time, and you've seen a pivot in my work moving from purely analytical to this work is hundreds of interviews, you know, and, and I think that's probably, as we've talked about before, one of the most important things from an analytic standpoint is to, as you set the projects up, increase the capacity to, you know, do 10 interviews behind it, <laughs> whatever the finding is, and make sure you're getting down to the practices like we have here, because then you're 
always able to feed these things in in small doses in ways that can have you know pretty outsized impact because of what Karen was saying, right? Removal of a negative is three to five times more value than adding a positive. But we, for whatever reason, are not wired to do that. We'll do these leadership programs and, you know, everybody will be, oh my gosh, the stress is everywhere. It's killing me. Now I got a handle on it. And then you end the day and say, what are you going to go do? And they all say, well, I'm going to go get a new best friend. <laughs> I'm going to just lean into the positive and they kind of quickly bypass all the uh, possibility we have to shape the negative. And so I would urge that. I would urge people to really think about that and what they what they can do there. Mm. So, so Karen, I can't, I can't believe we're already reaching the end of our conversation. So this is the question that we're asking all the guests in, in this series. What steps, Karen, can, can HR leaders take to humanize the, the work experience? Well, I think just recognizing the whole person, right? As we've talked about throughout this conversation, the the blurring effects and the ripple effects between personal and professional microstresses and lives are, are real. It's impossible to sort of separate the work responsibilities from life responsibilities because the ripple effects are enormous. So recognizing, in our case, that microstress at work and at home and in life uh, is real and it's taking a toll on people and recognizing that people need some help and some antidotes to responding to that. I think that's important, seeing the person as a whole and seeing that coming into work already microstressed from home will affect your performance at work and leaving work at the end of the day microstressed from your day will affect your life at home. It's a pretty vicious cycle. So seeing the opportunity to reduce microstresses is going to have a catalytic effect on that person's life. And it's a shift really from Maybe in the past, you know, we focused very much on performance, but actually we're focusing on performance and well-being. And, and then by, through focusing on well-being, you, you like to have a positive impact on performance as well. Yeah. And I think these are small efforts. Like it's not well-being in the sense of, okay, we need a policy where people are going to get sabbaticals. You know what I mean? These are really small moments. So one of the things we learned about our 10 percenters, our top people, you know, that were crushing performance, but also happier they maintained at least two and usually three groups they were an authentic part of outside of their profession, you know, as we've talked about, and that's drifted through COVID, right? So it can, you know, we're experiencing stress more because we've fallen out of those groups with social distancing. It can be as simple as, you know, leaders modeling that behavior or in one-on-ones asking, okay, well, what are you doing outside of work, right? And are you kind of reconnecting in ways that that's healthy for you? We had another great, you know, team leader software development company that he went a step further and he said, okay, well, I was just going through performance reviews with my 60 people. And he had people put it in their plans. You know, what are the couple things you're going to do to drive down the negative and to lean into the positive? And I'm sure he's not, you, you probably ask him about it. You know, I'm sure he's not going to, you know, chase it down to, to an area that's uncomfortable and blurring the boundaries between profession and person. But it just starts to get it a recognition, right? That the whole person is the one coming to work and that we need to think about this at some level. Um, in ways that are, again, very, very manageable. These are not big, big investments. These are just thinking about, you know, how do you help people adapt their lives a little bit in ways that can have impact. And that modeling is so important just by asking that question. It's probably giving people, you know, almost make, a, perhaps making them think, oh, OK, yeah, that's a good point. Or B, it's almost giving them permission. I want, you know, we, we want people to have interest outside work that's going to help them as people you know, that's more important. Obviously, it helps them at, it helps them at work as well. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, what we'll see, like, as we, uh, this research always evolves, you identify the, the, the principles, the things that can shift, and now we're starting to build things that are bringing these ideas in. And I believe what we'll see is that they'll have a quantifiable impact on retention um, and time to productivity. I believe they'll have a, 
uh, quantifiable impact on performance. You know, if we can do some paired things that we're focusing on, and if we can get it right, and we can start to see, does this somehow stop certain kinds of people from going into clinical categories of care? Right. Not only is that kind of morally right, but economically, the you know the benefits are significant. Um, so I think there's legitimate you know ways that we'll be able to see that you know as we move and evolve this body of work in different different avenues. Well. What a fantastic, firstly, what a fantastic book. I definitely recommend, uh, you know, if you're listening and, you know, you've probably be, been sparked by what Rob and Karen have been saying, I definitely recommend The Micro Stress Effect. It's uh, it's one of the best books I've read in the last sort of five years. It, it really is. And it, and and I think it will resonate with people when they, when they read it as well. Rob, Karen, thank you both for being guests on the podcast. It was, uh, it was great to learn more about your research and the people behind it. And, and hopefully helping some of our listeners to combat micro stress themselves, but maybe within their teams if they're seeing it as well. How, how can listeners find both of you on social media uh, and follow your work? I'll start, I'll start with you, Rob, and let Karen finish. Sure, sure. So I'm a uh, website we have out is robcross.org and we have a, a book, you know, site specifically for the book in there that has videos and other things on it that uh, people can access. So that, and uh, just following the work with I4CP and things that we're going to be doing there is probably the, next big avenues for for me so i'll just add i have a website karendillon.net and rob and i both like to connect to people on linkedin so i welcome invitations on linkedin and i welcome continuing the conversation with people if they've been interested in these ideas fantastic well, well thank you very much we'll put we'll put those links in the show notes and also the link to the um the assessment uh tool that you mentioned as well where people can you know look at the micro stresses themselves and, and generate a report so uh Thank you very much again for being on the show and yeah, l- looking forward to, to hearing some feedback from, from listeners on, on, on how they found it. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I'd like to say a big thank you once again to Rob Cross and Karen Dillon for joining us today and providing valuable insights into the world of microstress. I hope you found our conversation enlightening and gain practical strategies to combat personal and professional microstress for yourself and your team. And remember, it's the small things that can accumulate and impact our well-being. So being aware and proactive is crucial. If you did enjoy this episode, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming channel so that we can keep producing the show. For more from us at Insight 222, Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. For now, I extend my thanks again for tuning in and we'll be back next week with another thought-provoking episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Until then, take care and be mindful of those micro-stresses in your day-to-day life.